Well, I got to do that twice today, so um, what a privilege, seriously. And it's a privilege, too, to open God's Word with you guys. If you've been with us in this year, you know that we're moving through this deal called The Story of the King, and we're studying through the books of First and Second Samuel. And last week, we got together and we saw some things that I want to rehearse with you. We saw that, first of all, we have a king. And like week by week, I've been saying that. And week by week, I've been stopping and saying what a king is not. And I want to do it again. I'm doing it for a reason. I mean, a king is a paradigm shift for us. Most of us, at least, have been raised in a democracy. We don't get a sovereign monarch, but we have a sovereign monarch if you're a believer in Christ. We have a king, guys, and he doesn't ever run for re-election. He doesn't ever lick his finger and stick it to the wind and go, you know, I don't know, what would be the most popular decision? He just does what's right. And nothing and no one threatens his reign and rule over absolutely everything and over absolutely everyone. And we can buck that idea or we can give in to the fact that it is a glorious reality that we don't have a politician, but that we have a king. So that's the first thing. Secondly, his name is Jesus. It's not Tom. It's not your name. It's not anyone other than Christ. So we have a king. His name is Jesus. And here's the way it works with a king. He calls us to live for him. And our king is so gracious, and our king is so good, and our king is so wise, and our king is so powerful that he has constructed us in such a way to find our highest and greatest level of joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in finally dying to living for ourselves and to the little kings of this world that we might take up life in him and for him. But that's hard for us to believe, isn't it? I mean, none of the commercials we watch on TV seem to indicate that. So A, we have a king. B, his name is Jesus. C, our king calls us to live for him, and it's best when we do. And when we do live for him, incidentally, and this is what we saw last week, our lives look markedly, not incrementally, not just a little bit. Oh, there was that one time five years ago, and I think there was a little bit of a difference between me and everyone else. No, no, no. When we live for King Jesus, our lives look markedly different and ever increasingly so from the lives of those who don't live for King Jesus. And it's pretty simple as to why, because Jesus comes to us with a different wisdom. Jesus comes to us with a different value system. Jesus comes to us with a different vision of heaven and hell and life and eternity and this world and the next and all of these things. He comes to us with an entirely different mission than the mission that we would ordinarily take up for ourselves. So, when we really live for King Jesus, well, then our lives look different from the lives of those people who don't live for King Jesus. But what we didn't talk about last week and that I want to take up today is how do we live for King Jesus? In other words, what are the fundamental ingredients, if you will, of a life lived for King Jesus? And I want to give them to you in advance of now telling you the story because I want you to look for them in the story. God's Word, God's Spirit. Those who live for King Jesus live in humble obedience to God's Word and in the power of God's Spirit. Last week as we gathered and got in here, we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we saw that God's people demanded a human king. They wanted to be, well, just like everyone else, and God's going to give them a king, incidentally, just like all the other kings. His name is Saul, and He gives them that king today as we pick up our study 
in 1 Samuel chapter 9. But what I want you to see is that he gives him that king in such a way as to show you the value of the power and the authority of God's Word and God's Spirit in the life of one who would live for him. And that's not Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, we read this, and it's brilliant. It says this, it says that there was a man of Benjamin, now you're going to hear that twice, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphia. You're like, where's the brilliance? It's coming. He's a Benjamite. So now I've heard that twice. A man of Benjamin, he's a Benjamite, and he's a man of what? Because it's not what we're listening for. We're listening for God's Word. We're listening for God's Spirit. What we're getting is a Benjamite who was a man of wealth. Is there any problem with being a man of wealth? No. Unless, as we talked about last week, you take wealth into the throne room of your heart, you walk up to the throne of your heart where the Lord is, and you say, you know, Lord, um, I've been thinking this through. And, uh, and I think I want to worship and serve this instead. So could you just go stand in the hall for a while? If that's the deal, okay, then it's a problem. Otherwise, not so much. You can be a person marked by God's Word and marked by God's Spirit and have wealth. So that's not what's happening here. That's not the problem. But so far, we have a Benjamite who's a man of wealth named Kish. And now we read that Kish had a son whose name was Saul. And not only was Saul a wealthy Benjamite by means of association with his fabulously successful dad, but he was also a really good-looking guy. He was a handsome young man. And in fact, we're told that there was not a man among all the people of Israel more handsome than Saul. And not only that, but he was huge. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Like, I need a ladder for that. Saul, that's just him. Okay, why is this brilliant, this introduction? What is the author doing? He's coming to me and he's coming to you, and without telling us that this is what he's doing, he's calling us out on how superficial we really are. And here's how he's doing it, by coming to us with this man, Saul, and describing him in such a way as to give to him everything that we actually really admire in a person, in a leader. And then with the whole rest of the story of the life of Saul saying, yeah, but that's not what God admires. It's not what he values. But think of what he's said about Saul so far. He's from the right family, is he not? He's got a great pedigree. He's from the right tribe. And maybe you want to argue with that and say, yeah, but he's from the tribe of Benjamin and they were the lowliest of tribes. Exactly. That's what makes him the perfect choice. If God had chosen a king out of Judah, Ephraim, the most powerful tribe to the north, would have thought, no, I don't think so. If God had chosen a king out of Ephraim, Judah, the most powerful tribe to the south, would have said, you know what? It feels like an Ephraimite takeover here. Not interested. Nobody is threatened with the choice of a king from Benjamin. It is strategically brilliant. This man has the right pedigree, and he's wealthy, and we revere and admire that. And here's why, because wealth holds forth the promise of competence. In other words, you look at someone who has acquired much, and you think, obviously, they are an incredibly capable person. Obviously, they have great abilities. They can think strategically. They can put together just the right team. They can lead the team. They can inspire. They can do this. They can do that. They've got all of these competencies and capabilities, unless you inherit it, maybe, which is what Saul has done. Now, you may still have those capabilities, but the wealth doesn't speak of them. 
We revere these things. Saul's handsome. Now, why does that matter? Because beauty holds forth the promise of virtue. Beauty holds forth the promise of goodness. There is a reason why almost everyone on television is better looking than almost every one of us. Seriously. We, we like to look at those people. We like to listen to those people. We line up. We fawn over them. We'll get right behind them and follow them wherever it is that they go. We believe what they have to say. We are naturally attracted to naturally attractive people. Beauty holds forth the promise of virtue, and the tabloids have taught us, and so have a hundred thousand other things, that it's a promise rarely kept. And lastly, Saul was huge. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. What is that? It's physical strength. Listen, they're going to ask this guy to lead them into battle. That's a pretty valuable thing, isn't it? We admire that too. And yet as you move through this book, eight chapters later, you will come to another famously huge man, a giant, in fact. His name is Goliath, and you already know his story. And how does he die? By the power of God alive and at work in a little shepherd Boy, the author of this story is coming to us, and by the way that he describes Saul, he's testing our hearts. He's saying, look, I'm going to give this guy everything that you admire, and then you're going to watch him deconstruct because he has nothing that I admire. And the problem is not with God, it's with us. So Saul is not the guy, but he's the guy they get. And the author of 1 Samuel now begins to gesture towards his defects. In verse 3, for example, we read that now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. All right, now look, this is brilliant too, but only if you understand what donkeys represent within the context of the nation of Israel. And this might be a little bit surprising if you don't already know this, but the donkey was the royal steed of Israel. Think about that. It was the royal beast. It was the animal that the kings of Israel would ride on the day of their coronation. Now, why was it the royal state? All right, let's answer it this way. How many of you have ever ridden a donkey? Anybody? A couple people maybe? Okay. All right, here's the deal. I've never ridden a donkey, but I've seen it, and it's ridiculous. (laughs) Seriously, it's totally ridiculous. Like, we went on a a trip to Israel, and and some of you were with us on that trip, and and we went to Israel, and we crossed over the border east of Israel. We went into Jordan, and we spent a couple of days in Jordan. And in one of those days, we went down to Petra, and we spent the entire day touring Petra. So we walked through this cavern. It's beautiful. It's called the Seek, you know, and it's like three-quarters of a mile. And then we came into Petra and saw this fabulous building where they filmed Raiders of the Lost Ark, or at least part of it. And then we toured all of Petra, got all the way to the other end of Petra. It's the end of the day, and we've now got to walk all the way back out. And I'm kind of the guy always at the back of the group because I don't want anybody to get lost, so I'm always sort of tailing behind. I'm like the sheepdog, kind of. You know, seriously. And, and so I'm all the way in the back of the group, and I realize that it's me, and it's Don Marks, who's one of our elders, and it's Louis Prieto, who's also one of our elders, and who in the first service, to my great delight, was sitting right here. So Don says, I'm going to ride a camel. And I jumped in and said, I'm going to ride a camel, because there were only two camels, and there were three of us. And I'm a selfless pastor. So Don and I got on the camels, and Louis is like, You know, and then to Lewis's aid, here comes a guy with a little donkey. 
And I love the fact that Lewis rode the donkey because it was so ridiculous. So he got on this donkey that this guy's walking behind, swatting with this little thing, you know, and, and like on a donkey, I mean, they're small over there, like your toes drag on the ground. So Lewis has got his feet up in the air and he's just bouncing like this, riding his donkey while, while Don and I are looking down from 40 feet, you know. It's so ridiculous riding a donkey. David rode a donkey. Solomon rode a donkey. Jesus, who went to Jerusalem to be crowned with thorns, rode a donkey. What's with the donkey? You look regal on it? No. Majestic? Really? Kingly? Nope, and that's the idea. They rode donkeys, guys, as a badge of their humility as an emblem of the reality that the real king is God himself. Saul loses his donkeys, and he, the best-looking man in all of Israel, head and shoulders above everyone else, walked. He actually did look majestic. So we read again, verse 3, now... The donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost, and so Kish said to his son Saul, who probably lost the donkeys in the first place, take one of the young men with you and arise and go look for the donkeys, which is exactly what they do for a couple of days until Saul runs out of patience, incidentally. And then when they came to the land of Zuf, still looking for the donkeys, Saul finally said to the servant who was with him, come, let's quit, let's go home, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. Translation, these donkeys are frankly just not worth any further effort. There are other things at play here that are more valuable. Let's cut our losses and go home. What is the writer of the story saying? Well, first of all, he's saying, you know what? Saul is not a shepherd. David will be a shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. Saul's presented as a donkey wrangler of some sorts, and not a very good one, and not a very faithful one. He doesn't have the heart of the shepherd. What's the heart of the shepherd? Because Jesus tells us, and it's a fabulous heart. It's the heart of the one who leaves the 99 safely in the pen and who goes out to find the one, Saul's lost many, the one that is lost, and he does not relent. He does not stop until he finds us. That's not Saul, guys. He's saying, let's go home. But the servant in verse 6 said to Saul, okay, not just yet. The servant here starts to lead. It's fascinating. He says, behold, meaning look, there is a man of God in this city. So now notice who knows about the man of God because it's not Saul. Saul will actually meet Samuel, who is this man of God here in a second. He won't even know he's meeting him. Like, he doesn't know who he is. That's astounding. But the servant knows he is a man of God. There's a man of God in the city. What is the role of the man of God, of the prophet of the Lord? It is to deliver the word of the Lord. What are we looking for in this story? God's word, God's spirit. Listen to what the servant says about the word of the Lord. It's profound. The servant says to Saul, behold, there is a man of God in the city, and he is a man who is held in honor. And here's why, because all that he says comes true. Now, I want to stop for a minute and step into our story. Can you say that? Because what he's saying is that all that God says comes true. 
That is a really significant statement. Like when you're doing your personal worship and you get to, hey, you got to stop on that and go, all that he says comes true. All that he says comes true. All that he says about life and death, about heaven and hell, about, about marriage and about money and about wisdom and about life and about sex and about eternity, about values and about ethics, about what really matters and actually what doesn't. What doesn't? About who or what to live for and what world to live in light of. About where we're going. Everything that he says comes true. That changes how we live now. And it certainly changes this story. He says, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor in all that he says comes true. So here's the suggestion now. Let us go there and perhaps he can tell us the way that we should go. And then in verse 10, Saul, who has just proven himself to be less faithful in terms of being a shepherd or even a donkey wrangler than his servant and certainly less spiritually adept, says to the servant, all right, well, good idea. We'll do that. He says, well said, come, let us go. And so they went to the city where the man of God, who is Samuel, was located. And as they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out of the city to draw water, probably toward the end of the day in the cool of the day, which is when they would normally all go out together to do that kind of thing customarily. And they said to them, as they're coming out of the city, is the seer, which is just another word for the prophet here. And the girls answered, he is. And then they just keep going. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has, he has come just now. That's actually very important to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. And as soon as you enter the, the gate of the city is the idea, you will find him before he goes outside the gate of the city. So he's coming out as you're going to go in and he's coming out to go up to the high place to eat for the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. And afterward, those who are invited... Okay, well, they will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. And so they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city through its gate, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. (sighs) Good grief. Ask what time it is, you know, and I'm going to tell you how to make a watch. I mean, that's a lot of information. I'm reading through that, and I'm thinking, can we just get to the point? All I asked was, is he here? What's with all the details? The details are the point. Don't let those things frustrate you in these stories. The details matter. What we're discovering as we're moving through this story is that since the opening line of this story, none other than God Himself has been controlling absolutely everyone and absolutely everything in this story, which is now explicitly stated in verse 15 where we read, now the day before Saul came, the Lord had already revealed to Samuel that tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be king. No, to be prince, though he'll be the king. God's the king over my people Israel. And he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. And then when Samuel saw 
Saul walking toward him in that city gate, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people, which means what, practically speaking? Well, as you rewind the tape of the story for a minute, it means that Saul's donkeys did not just go missing by accident, but by the will of God. That Saul's father did not just yank Saul and the servant into the room and go, hey, guys, you know what? You're going to go find these donkeys together. But God sent them, ultimately. That Saul and his servant who wandered all over the place, feeling like they're wasting their time or wasting their life day after day for a total of three days, as we'll see, really were not wasting any time at all, but were sent on this misadventure from their perspective, sovereignly by the Lord, who was timing it out in such a way that they would arrive at exactly the right time, just after Samuel got there, and right as he's coming out of the gate to head up to the sacrifice and to the banquet. What it reveals is that even though Saul went out looking for the kingly beast of Israel, the donkeys, what he was really looking for, though completely without his knowledge, was the kingship of Israel itself. And finally, what it tells us is that even though Saul is about to be anointed the human king of Israel, the real king is the one who behind the scenes of his life and my life and yours is directing absolutely everything and absolutely everyone. Though oftentimes we can't see it until we look back upon it. And that's a point that's now driven home in verse 18. It says, then Saul approached Samuel in that city gate, having no idea, of course, that it was Samuel. And he says to him, tell me, where is the house of the seer? And Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. And then he just takes over. He says, go up before me to the high place for today. You shall eat with me. And in the morning, I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. So God is revealing the thoughts and the intentions of the heart and mind of Saul to Samuel. Saul's taking all of this in. And in the event that he doesn't believe that, listen to what else he says. He says, as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them for they have been found, which must have blown Saul's mind, but which is intended to drive home the authority, the truthfulness of God's word. All that he says is true. And we're looking for God's Word and God's Spirit. Not just in Saul, but in us. And then he says this. This is the clincher. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Okay, here's what that means. Saul, as you already know, everyone in Israel has requested a human king. Here's what you didn't know until now. You're it. You're the guy. You will be that king. And Saul gets the message. Because listen to his protest. He says, am I not a Benjamite? From the least of the tribes of Israel, and is not my clan the humblest of of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? And that appears like a statement of great humility, but I'll tell you what it isn't. It isn't a statement of humble obedience. It's not that. In other words, he's not saying, listen, I I, I would never have picked me. I I really don't feel qualified for the job. I I truly, I don't desire it. So, you know, but in light of all of the miraculously arranged, clearly identifiable circumstances of the past three days, as you've now begun to unpack them for me, I am receiving this 
as God's authoritative word for me, and even though it scares me half to death, in the power of God's Spirit and in accordance with God's word coming to me through you, Samuel, so you're going to need to stick real close by me, buddy, if this is what God wants me to do, I'll get on my donkey. I'll drag my toes in the dirt. I'll do it. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, what, me? Are you kidding? Is this a joke? This is a joke. Okay, no, no, no. Seriously, no. This isn't funny. I'm not going to do that. That's a, it's ridiculous. That's a terrible idea. Don't tell anybody about this. Seriously, don't even bring it up again. Let's not go there. And so God through Samuel does something very gracious. He just keeps pouring on the evidence. Oh, you doubt my word? Uh, okay. So now Samuel takes him up to a banquet, 30 guests invited, everybody seated at the table. It's all ready. (laughs) And there's a spot for Saul, you know, that's already been reserved because, well, he knew that he was coming. He seats him at that special spot that's been reserved. He calls over the butcher and in front of Saul, he says, hey, you know that piece of meat, the like really good one that I told you to set aside yesterday? Saul's like, yesterday? Yeah, no, I knew you were coming. Yeah, bring that. This is the guy I told you about. Stunning. After this, he spends the night at Samuel's house, and then on the morning of the next day, we read at the beginning of chapter 10, then Samuel took a flask of oil, which symbolized God's Spirit and specifically marked Saul as being God's property. That's important later in the story. The anointed one is the property of the Lord. Saul is his property. David will respect that. And he poured it on his head, and he kissed him, the prophetic kiss being the the symbol of God's blessing. And he said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince or leader over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And since I know you're still struggling with this, this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you. I didn't come up with this. I didn't concoct it to be prince over his heritage. And now just watch the details. Here they go. When you depart from me today, you will meet two. Now watch the numbers. They ascend. You will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, good grief, you're going to tell me what they're going to say? Yes. The donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor, where three, so the number is ascending, men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. I'm sorry, Samuel, could you be more specific? No, I think this covers it. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of this sacred bread, which they would otherwise have offered in sacrifice to God himself. That's unusual, which you then shall accept from their hand. And then after that, you shall come to Gibeah Elohim, the the hill of God, where there is a garrison of Philistines on the hill of God. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet, now it's a whole group, You will meet a whole group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp and tambourine and flute and lyre and maybe one of those really cool instruments that Hannah was playing, that thing. I don't know what that is, but it's awesome. And they'll be prophesying. And then the Spirit of the Lord, you see, it's the pinnacle. It's what we're listening for, God's Word 
In God's spirit, the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned at least for a time into another man. You will be turned into another man. Okay, if you did your personal worship this week and you studied through this text, then you know what happens next is absolutely everything that God through Samuel told to Saul would happen every single thing, thus authenticating, you would think, the Word of God in the heart and in the mind and therefore then also in the life and illustrating for us the place and the prominence and the primacy of God's Word in the lives of all of us who would live for Him. And it speaks as well to the need for God's Spirit who by God's Word and through God's Word turns us into different people. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5.18 about the Holy Spirit. I think it's really profound. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Do we really need to debate that? Are we good with that? We're cool, right? Like we've lived it? Really? Okay, so do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. It turns you into another person. But instead be filled or intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. Alcohol turns us into a different person. It affects the way that we speak. Like the quietest among us become some of the loudest. It's shocking. Like we go, I can't believe how that guy gets loud when... I can't believe some of the things that we say either. It affects our vision, does it not? Sometimes we see two or three times whatever it is that we happen to be looking at. We, it affects the way that we hear. It affects all of our senses is the point. It affects the way that we walk. And what is the walk in the Bible? It's metaphorical of the way that we live, of the decisions that we make. Now, just rewind the tape on your life for a second. Go back in your story and think about some of the decisions made while you were another person in some sense. It affects your memory, what you remember and don't. It affects the way you spend your money. You get bills and you go, what happened? You know, it affects... Your courage makes you fearless. It's liquid courage. All right, now let's read it again. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, Paul says. But he is commending a kind of intoxication. And it's an intoxication with the Holy Spirit, he says, but instead be filled or intoxicated with the Holy Spirit and understand that when you are, okay, he's going to turn you into another person too. It will affect the way that you speak. Even the quietest among us will begin to speak of the things of God, of the gospel of Christ. It will affect your vision, the way that you see yourself and your family and your business and and this community and the world and the way that you look at people. People who look like they are in desperate need and who previously to you would have been a terrifically costly, inconvenient person. I don't want to see them. You see differently. It affects what you hear and your willingness to shh and listen. It affects the way you walk, the decisions that you make. It affects your memory and particularly, I think, what you're willing to forget how you spend your money. It makes you fearless, allowing you to fearlessly lay your life down in humble obedience to God's Word and the power of God's Spirit by His Word and by His Spirit. Well, He makes us different people. It's where we started. We have a king. His name is Jesus. Our king calls us to live for Him. And when we do, 
Okay, we live different kinds of life, and why? Because we learn to humbly obey His Word, which we receive as actually being true. And that changes everything. And we do that in the power of His Spirit. So I want to close with two questions. Number one, and it deals with humility before God's Word. Do you place yourself above or below God's Word? Are you up here and it's down here, or is it up here and you're down here? Who's the authority, I guess, is maybe a different way of asking that question. And where is its place and where is its prominence in your life? How much time do you spend opening it up and and pouring into everything that it says for everything that it says is true and will come true? And how does that time compare with the other things that we chase after in life? Like the accumulation of wealth, and incidentally, we need money to live. So it's not like we shouldn't work and stay home and read the Bible all day. That's not what I'm saying. But where is its place? Where is it in comparison with exercising and fitness and all that stuff? And look, I'm into that too. But where is its place? And are there parts of it that you look at and you're, you're kind of like Saul? You're like, what, me? No, you're kidding, right? I mean, that's a joke. <laughs> I think I'm going to take a pass on that. We all need to get on our donkey and realize who the real king is and then live that way before our families Before this world, secondly, are you intoxicated with God's Spirit? And if so, how specifically has He, by the Word, changed the way you speak? What's different? How has He changed your vision, what you see, and how you look at life and things and the world and all that stuff? How has He changed your value system? How has He changed how you hear and listen and decide and all of the things that you do as you walk through life? How has He affected your generosity? How has He made you courageous? How? Because by God's Word and through God's Word, the Holy Spirit of God alive and at work in you as you submit to Him. Okay, here's the deal. He should be making you into another person. A person who looks more and more and more like Jesus. So meditate on that. Think about that. Talk to the Lord about that today. Okay? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, we do thank You that there is a place of truth in this world and You have not withheld it from us. God, You have given us Your Word, which is truth and which is life. And then You have given us Your Son, who is the way and who is the truth and who is the life. Lord, by Your Spirit, awaken our eyes that we might behold Christ, that we might see Him high and lifted up, that we might recognize who He is and who we are, why we're here, that we might in humility surrender our sin to Him, for He is holy And recognize as well that our only victory is in Him, in His life, in His death, and in His resurrection, and then in lives of gratitude and thankfulness and in worship. Lord, refabricate the way we look at everything, the way we speak, what we listen to, and how we hear. God, the walk of this life 
Change us. Fill us by your Spirit. Let us embrace you through your Word and make us for your glory into different people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.